Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Today, we talk oil and its aftermath. In a 2014 opinion issued in the Southern District of New York, Judge Lewis Kaplan wrote, quote, This case is extraordinary. The facts are many and sometimes complex. They include things that normally come only out of Hollywood, unquote. Like most stories that end up in court, this is one with two very different points of view. My guest today, Stephen Donziger, represents one side of the case. According to him, when Texaco, later acquired by Chevron, stopped drilling for oil in the Amazon rainforest, millions of gallons of toxic waste remained in its wake. For over two decades, a group of Ecuadorians has waged a class-action lawsuit over what environmentalists have dubbed the Amazon Chernobyl. One review of Crude, a 2009 documentary by Joe Berlinger about the case, reads, quote, If you like stories with real-life good guys and bad guys, then Crude is for you. Don Ziger, as lead attorney representing the Ecuadorian plaintiffs, has been fighting this fight for over 20 years. Chevron claims that the required cleanup has already taken place and that the remaining pollution is the responsibility of Petro-Ecuador, the state-owned oil company. Stephen Donziger says Chevron is waging a massive retaliation campaign against him. But this story starts with Texaco. They created what is probably the world's worst oil contamination ever. Um, they dumped billions of gallons of toxic waste, even by their own admission, into the streams and rivers and soils of the Amazon rainforest. There were several indigenous groups and farmer communities living in the area when this happened, and they essentially poisoned 
the ecosystem, the water supply that thousands of people relied on for their drinking water, for bathing, for fishing, and to, for their very survival. Which so, had been pristine rainforest down there before Texaco went down and found oil, correct? That, that's exactly right. It had been pretty much pristine rainforest until the mid-60s when Texaco showed up and found oil, and they had a huge concession from Ecuador's government, 1,500 square miles. They built and developed 10 different oil fields. There were hundreds of well sites, about 1,000 of these open-air toxic waste pits. They just dug um, the dirt out of the jungle floor and dumped all the drilling muds, which contained carcinogens, benzene, and the like, um, oil sludge right into the jungle, and they built these pits on hills, and and generally they would put pipes on the side of them and run off the surplusage through the pipe down into streams and rivers. And and a big part of this is that the produced water that results from drilling, which in the U.S., I'm told, their common practice is to re-inject it back into the ground, into some safe They did not do that in They did not do it. They they, they really cut corners to the max. They made lagoons of it everywhere. And, And granted, this was an isolated part of the forest at that time, but there were indigenous groups that had lived there for millennia that were living and prospering in this beautiful environment, and they just dump toxic oil and oil waste right into the streams and rivers that they relied on for their sustenance. People were treated with a complete lack of respect. And and those people that were there, the indigenous people there in that part of Ecuador, none of them were included, if if I understand it correctly, in the development of the area, meaning all outside labor was brought from Ecuador. They had a lot of high-paying jobs, or relatively speaking, for Ecuador, and they brought them in. And the people who were the local people were just sidelined to, like, basket weaving or, like, some little selling trinkets. That's generally true except for one, one task, which was to clean up or purport to clean up the oil spills. Uh, well, I want to go back to So Texaco has the find in the 60s, and they developed the the the, the oil fields there uh, for like a 22-year, 20-plus-year period. And then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or take me through what happens when, when Chevron absorbs Texaco. Well, you know, first of all, Chevron knew when it bought Texaco that it was not off the hook. What had happened is that after we initially filed our lawsuit back in, way back in 1993, this is probably the world's longest lawsuit. <laughs> it seems that way. It seems that way. Yeah. And uh, instead of dealing with the problem and dealing directly with the communities, Texaco went directly to Ecuador's government and said, oh, we'll put a pittance of money, $40 million, and you give us a release. But very importantly, the release did not release the private claims of our clients. Our lawsuit is a private lawsuit brought by private citizens against a private company. It's a civil lawsuit. This has already been resolved by multiple courts in our favor. But Chevron, to this day, for public relations and other purposes, still tries to raise this issue like, oh, we cleaned up, we were released. I mean, first of all, the the cleanup didn't really happen. And second, the legal document itself does not release them from the private claims. Where'd you grow up? Jacksonville, Florida. In Jacksonville. And what'd your dad do? He was a small businessman in the in the television picture tube business. And what did your mom do? She was uh, a troublemaker. Yeah. My mom was was uh, an editor of a local newspaper for the Jewish community in Jacksonville. Um, and she was a substitute school teacher and, you know, spent a lot of time at home with my my sister and I. She was a great mom. And what was your childhood like in terms of your own political advocacy well, I, or social consciousness? Yeah, I, I, I developed a social conscience at a young age. The world, at a very young age, struck me as a very unfair place to a lot of people, and it bothered me greatly. 
Um, my mom helped cultivate that. We went to protests in front of local grocery stores, you know, in support of uh, Cesar Chavez and the Farm Workers Union when I was, you know, young, 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, I met a, a local elected uh, official in my hometown, Steve Padgett, who was a huge inspiration for me. He was a really great politician who had a deep social conscience. Um, and as I became a teenager, um, I took it upon myself to really try to learn the stuff that I wasn't being taught in school about, you know, how the world was really working. For example? Oh, just the, the degree of, 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 you know, injustice, the, the, you know, issues having to do with race, poverty, the, the stuff that, um, that, that, that schools weren't really putting at the fore in terms of teaching kids. Mm-hmm. Um, Your so, mother had you do something with Chavez? Yeah. And what, what did you do? Well, we went to a grocery store and, you know, we were, uh, you know, we basically organized a boycott of a local chain of grocery stores, Winn-Dixie in Jacksonville, yeah, of course. Um, because they were, they were, you know, they, you know, Cesar Chavez was trying to boycott the grocery store for various labor-related issues in California related to the farm workers' unions. How old were you then? I think I was about 12 or 13, maybe, you know, in, in that area, but... But, you know, look, I had a fun childhood. I mean, I don't want right. to act like all I did was sit yeah, around and right, protest. Right. It, was just, it was one of the many posters, I did, <laughs> including, you know, swimming. With red lines through lettuce yeah, leaves. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we did a lot of surfing. I mean, we, we grew yeah, up near the beach. Um, you know, I had, a, I had a really healthy, active childhood, but I always sort of felt like I wanted to utilize whatever professional talents I might one day develop on behalf of people who were getting screwed over. It's, it's interesting how people— the, the people develop that sense of social injustice very young. Yes. And you look at the world as a place where there are powerful people that are abusing powerless people, and you want to do something about it. Yeah, that, that, that's very true. And, and look, I grew up in an upper-middle-class family. I mean, I had a lot of opportunity. But I, I decided, you know, as I went through college and then law Where'd school— Where did you go into graduate? American University in D.C. Yeah, yeah, I went to yeah, GW for three yeah. years. Yeah. I wanted to be like in D.C. near the politics. You know, at that time, I sort of was under what I think is now a mistaken notion that like it was all decided in Washington when right. I realized it's actually decided right. other other places. Right. Um, so a lot of time in courtrooms. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I wanted to be in D.C. And then from there, I went, I went. I was, you know, fortunate enough to, to get into Harvard Law School. I mean, I say fortunate enough because I met a, some incredibly fabulous people there who, who, who do really— Was that the goal when you were at AU? No. I mean, it didn't even occur to me I'd be qualified honestly to, to get into a place like Harvard I ended up getting um, you know I did well uh, academically um, I was very interested in the subject matter liked it there how did you change at Harvard you're in law well, so you're one of the top law schools in the world what, what, what Harvard, was that experience Harvard like puts you? right in front of you like this choice and, and it's a fundamental profound choice about life and because Harvard you know when you go to Harvard and come out with a Harvard degree especially a Harvard Law School, you can do almost anything you want in the legal profession and in other professions. Or you can do almost anything you want, you know, fighting the the power structure that keeps people down. So, you know, when people get out of law school, many of them are, you know, burdened with debt and, and, and their choices can become limited because of the financial thing. It takes a lot of, I think, you know, commitment to this kind of work to to choose a path that that most people would consider to be complicated and hard. I mean, for me, it never was. My first job out of law school was working for the public defender in Washington, D.C., defending children accused of crimes in D.C. 
Um, and from, out of Harvard. Out of Harvard, yeah. I mean, I made virtually no money, but I loved the job. I was in court, and it was so interesting, and I learned so much. I mean, skills that I carry forward with me to this day in the work I do now in Ecuador. So, so right away when you get out, yeah. do good for others versus do well for yourself uh, line, you made a clear choice. You I made a clear choice, but I also don't want to, you know, overplay it in the sense that I, I, I enjoy the work. You know, it's not— Altruism. Sure. It makes me feel good about myself, and 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 I, it's challenging on so many levels. It's fascinating. And you've it's been creative. very upfront about this one case where if you th- if you survive, you know, if you prevail, uh, you could make a lot of money. Absolutely. This, yeah. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I mean, I want to make. Uh, you know, look. I will, let me put it this way: the purpose of the case. I'm is not, not criticizing. Yeah, no, the purpose of the case is not to make money for lawyers. The purpose of the case is to help people who are being grievously harmed and even being killed by cancers and exposures to toxins. However, the model of the case that has allowed this case to be, I think, break new ground. And the unique aspect of this case, to me, is our ability to harness what I would call the capitalist model, the, the free market model in the law to bring in significant resources from investors and others so we can get in the same ballpark as a company like Chevron, which you have to remember, they're not only trying to win the case, they're trying to kill the idea of the case because they don't want lawyers like us doing this kind of work ever in the future. So it's important that the money aspect is important. And, and look, if I end up collecting a fee, I don't know that I will. It's never what's motivated me. Um, the plan, my personal plan, and I think other lawyers on the case feel the same way, is to use some of that money to leverage it back into the into the fight for social justice around the world. I love that uh, in this New Yorker magazine article that I went back and read again, uh, they quote, in 2008, a Chevron lobbyist in Washington told Newsweek, we can't let little countries screw around with big companies like this. And then one Chevron spokesman said, we're going to fight this until hell freezes over, and then we'll fight it out on the ice. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, lo- I love that quote. Yeah, you know, it's funny, the, 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 the psychology of a major company that's Chevron that's almost always gets its way around the world. And what a company does, in this case Chevron, when you actually harness the power of a community-based movement. Remember, there are communities on the ground in the Amazon, indigenous and farmer communities that are behind this case. They have a democratic organization down there that runs the case, that hired me, that hires other lawyers. The power that you can create when you organize properly at the grassroots level and you're smart enough to connect that up with capital, that is, you know, people who have money to back it, understanding that they can actually themselves make money off of the claim, is what's absolutely paradigmatic shifting about this case. I mean, because they've never seen a situation where a a Harvard Law grad and many other people, it would be a mistake to say that it's primarily me. I mean, there are a lot of people working on this. It's a team. It's a team. But, you know, I've been in it. The only lawyer still left who was in it in 1993 But what they don't like is a guy like me and others who have access to the power structure, the elite hedge funds, you know, classmates of mine who are in very powerful positions, including the president of the United States, can connect up with, you know, people in the jungle who don't have any money. I mean, their business model does not account for what has happened here, okay, which is why they're fighting it so hard, why why they're spending so much money, why they refuse to settle the case. How did the government of Ecuador evolve over the time that you've done the case? Because if I read about different administrations that have mm-hmm. come in, some have been more disposed toward helping you than others, correct? Well, look, um, you know, what what Chevron and what Texaco and now Chevron has counted on in, in Latin America, but really all over the world, is that they can go into a place, do a deal with the government, get access to oil, and just work the system 
in their favor. I mean, you know, there was there was significant economic advancement in Ecuador because of oil. There still is to this day. I mean, they're they're a member of OPEC. You know, oil is a huge part of the national budget. Even with prices down, it's a very important part of, of what's allowed the country to develop socially. Now, what we experienced. Remember, I started going down there in 1993. I've been down there about 250 times. I used to go to Ecuador like you would fly on the shuttle to D.C. from New York. I mean, I would go for a day meeting, come right back, okay? Luckily, it's the same time zone as New York, so it wasn't that, you know, it didn't really shake me up too much. But I've been there many, many times. In 2007, um, a man named Rafael Correa was elected president. He was a former professor, young guy. Um, very nationalistic, uh, has a PhD in economics from a U.S. university, very capable. And over the last 10 years, he's been president, and I think the country has changed. What's changed in terms of the Ecuador case, in terms of the Chevron case, is you finally had a president of Ecuador who cared about what was happening to his own citizens, these indigenous groups and farmer communities in the jungle, these impoverished groups. And in Berlinger's film, he shows up. Yeah, Berlinger's film, he shows up. You know, so the first time you have a president who goes down, sees what really happened, the oil's visible all over the place, talks to the people, and says, this is one of the biggest outrages I've ever seen. They now, would, very often, yeah. the guys like that, they're sincere at the moment that they say that. Yes, yes. And then things evolve. When they, How is he held up as an ally? Look, th- this is the thing. Okay, he has his job. We have our job. We don't work together. We're not part of the same team. He's the government. We're a private lawsuit. However, I think it's important for the world to recognize that Rafael Correa, the president of Ecuador, the first person ever to go down there and see the damage and talk about it, has stood by the victims, okay? He hasn't interfered with the lawsuit. And what I decided, along with my colleagues in Ecuador, was that until we convinced the country, public opinion, that this was a battle between a country that had been completely screwed over by an American company and that company, as opposed to the indigenous people only in Texaco, we would never win the case. So we spent a hell of a lot of time doing media work and and speaking at schools and universities. You had been a journalist temporarily, if I read correctly, before. I was a a journalist before I became a lawyer. I worked in Nicaragua during the height of the Contra War. I worked there from 1984 to 1987, saw young people die, covered the war, lived in Managua. For who? I worked initially for United Press International, then I freelanced for a bunch of papers, the Christian Science Monitor, Philadelphia Inquirer. I mean, that was back when people read newspapers, you know, and I made a living writing freelance stories out of Monaco. You'd already graduated from Harvard Law School? No, I had graduated. That was between um, undergrad and law school. I I did that for four years, and then I went to law school. I mean, that's where I really learned about the culture, the Spanish. And, you know, when I went to law school and got out of law school, because of that previous experience in Latin America, I was able to sort of build on that because I said, I've got to do legal work in Latin America. I I love the region too much, and I want to sort of somehow figure out a role for myself down there and ended up in this case. But... What did you learn during that period that helped you later on? Well, look, I mean, isn't it all part of the same power structure? I mean, I mean, what I learned, I mean, first of all, in Nicaragua, I saw, you know, a, a battle for, for social justice um, against a U.S.-backed dictator. Um, I saw, uh, you know, the sacrifices people were willing to make to get the most basic things in life that many people in the U.S. take for granted. And I understood what it meant you know, in a way that I could never probably get from living in the United States. And it gave me perspective, okay? I mean, from that point forward, nothing ever seemed too big for me. You know, nothing ever seemed too complicated or too, you Unbelievable. Know, unbelievable. Like, you know, I mean, I felt terribly lucky, uh, you know, to, to have grown up in a place 
where I had the space, you know, to develop the way I've developed. Because there is many countries in the world, as you know, when people speak out, they get killed or they get put in jail. Or they you get bought off. Yeah, and they get bought off. And that just sort of that just sort of made me redouble my commitment to wanting to do what I wanted to do with my life. You know, it's like I've got to do something. Why? Yeah. Why? Well, look, I mean, I, you know. Well, you could have done a little of that. You could have been like most people in New York, I know, where you made a lot of money. And then you had a dinner and you gave money to yeah, help that's the people what my down wife, there. My wife keeps telling me, why don't you do it that way? <laughs> <laughs> Our lives would have been so much better. She wants you to be home with her. She you know, loves you. You could have done this like, you know, five could have made hours a few million a bucks a year the- <laughs> and given them 25000 a table. But you didn't do that. Um, why? You, you know. Look, I never wanted not to make money. I mean, I, I, I like money or at least enough to be financially yeah. secure and enjoy my life. And, and look, my wife and I both work and we make enough money to live relatively comfortably. Yeah. There's no complaints. We have one kid. We live in Manhattan. You know, we're not wealthy by any means, but we live fine. We take a vacation a couple, two, three years. We're okay, man. It's all good. If we win the case, obviously, I will hopefully recover a percentage of— the thing which is the by 22 the 22 years of yeah. your life you spent. And if I'm able to get that, I'll be in a different position. I mean, our goal, my wife and I have discussed this extensively along with the clients, and we want to create an entity uh, to, to continue to do the work in other places. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where I talk with Joe Berlinger, the director of Crude, on why he makes films about real events. I mean, the idea of capturing human drama in all its ambiguous glory as it unfolds before the camera is, first of all, an incredible way to make a film, and secondly, to have faith. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility 
Dads Appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Stephen Donziger, the lawyer who represents a group of Ecuadorian people in a landmark decades-long class action lawsuit against Chevron. The case has been fought both in Ecuador and the United States. In 2011, Donziger won in Ecuador, and it was a big win, resulting in a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron. However, three years later in New York, federal judge Lewis Kaplan declared that this judgment could not be enforced in the United States due to what Kaplan described as, quote, dishonest and corrupt measures of Donziger's team that led to the verdict in Ecuador. Donziger is currently appealing the Kaplan decision. If Donziger prevails and Chevron pays, he could see a large amount of cash, although that wasn't the goal. Look, I never did this for the money. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to do it and make enough money to live, you know, relatively comfortably. Um, I do want the money, though, if I can get it, because I want to continue to do this work and train and fund other lawyers to do this work around the world. I mean, I want to help create new capacity on the progressive side of the law to fight these powerful corporations that, to me, are abusing the law. You know, I can tell you, I personally have been targeted with what is probably the most well-funded corporate retaliation campaign ever. If you Google me, you'll get all this negative but I, stuff I, I, about But I want to get yeah. to, what did you do about the litigation finance thing? Who, okay, so who, so you created is, that or someone came to you with the idea? So, you know, look, you know. Uh, you needed I, money. I needed to be creative about getting money because, you know, look, for several years, the case sort of went along at a, at a certain level and we were fine. Well, it was clear we were going to win the case in Ecuador, where Chevron wanted it. They decided to try to destroy the case. And the turning point was in May 2009 when 60 Minutes ran a segment on the case, and it made them look terrible. They interviewed me, and a couple days later, I got an internal email from Chevron because I've litigated against them and gotten some of their documents. And they said, let's go after this lawyer. Because they calculated that I was, like, at the center of it all. They could cut off the head, the whole thing. Very Nixon White House strategy. Very Nixonian strategy. And they hit me with everything they have. I mean, they sued me under the civil racketeering uh, statute. They sued me for $60 billion. I live in a two-bedroom apartment, okay? Imagine coming home, you know, to your wife and saying, hey, honey, um, you know, she says, how'd your day go? And you say, oh, uh, well, uh, it was okay, so I got sued for $60 billion today, you know? I put it at the end of the list. I said, well, I had a nice lunch with my mom, (laughs) and uh, then I went and bought you some flowers. Oh, and I got sued for $60 billion by Chevron. Exactly. I mean, no one, as far as my research tells me, no individual in our country's history had ever been sued for so much money, okay? And I was being sued because I had litigated. What year was that? This was was in— After uh, the 60 Minutes piece. Yeah, this was in—okay, so the 60 Minutes was in 2009. They actually hit hit me with the lawsuit on February 1st, 2011, Mm -hmm. okay? And on that day, I was flying down to Ecuador. I got off the plane in Miami to change planes. My BlackBerry was blowing up. And I was like, holy shit, they really did it. Like, I couldn't believe they actually were going to do that. Where is that case now? Well, we ended up litigating it, and they won. I mean, how do I explain this? Um, they dropped all the $60 billion on the EVA trial. They dropped all the damages claims because under our system, our legal system, if you're sued for money, you get a jury. If you're not sued for money, you don't get a jury. So in order to do that, they, they dropped, dropped the all money. the money damages, and they would not be attacking us to this degree 
had we not effectively called them out for what we believe are their environmental crimes and fraud. No, no, no. Yeah. So just to finish this, yeah. so when you come up with the idea that you need the money and you're going to monetize this with the uh, litigation finance, it, you came up with this idea or someone came to you and suggested try this. And how did you do it? Where does the money come from? So uh, it comes from different sources. It comes from a combination of wealthy individuals and organized hedge funds that invest in Patton litigations. Boggs. Patton Boggs is a law firm that helped us raise money. They're, they're a major Burford law firm. Burford Capital. Burford was a fund. Um, Woodsford was a fund. Mr. DeLeon was an individual. He didn't have a fund, but he would invest personally. I mean, this is a guy I went to law school with, by the way, who ended up making a lot of money in the internet poker space. And he became very wealthy. And we, he was in the Latino Law Students Association with me at Harvard. And we stayed in touch, and he ended up funding a lot of the case. Um, but we have had a diverse, diverse sources of money that have backed this case through the years, and it's, it's really the key to our success. It's pretty clear to them now that we're not going away. So take me like a baseball box score just through the beats of the highlights. So, so these are the highlights. 93, we start the case in the U.S. They wanted it in Ecuador. We fought to keep it in the U.S. They won that battle. So in 2001, we go back to Ecuador. A lot of people said, don't go. You'll waste your time. It's like this union leader told me it'll never happen. Um, You're wasting your time. But we did it anyway. Um, And then, you know, the case started to go real slowly. They were trying to sabotage the process. The new guy gets elected, you know. What was his name again? Rafael Correa. Correa. Um, Then we win the case in 2011. 18 um, billion. 18 billion. In 2013, it got affirmed by the Supreme Court, but the money got halved because they took out a punitive damages component, which is unfortunate. So the judgment ended up being $9.5 billion, but interest runs the more they delay now. Supreme Court of Ecuador. Yeah. Um, and, and right now, the judgment's worth about $10 billion, which, by the way, might seem like a lot of money, but it really isn't. But there were also uh, movements, if I'm not mistaken, because I'm not just only relying on the New Yorker magazine because I read a bunch of different articles online about you and about the case, is that also uh, Chevron, in the way that they tried to move the case out of the U.S. into Ecuador, they tried to move it back to the U.S. Yes. And they, you, you got jurisdiction. You got a ruling in Canada. Yeah. So, so <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So, again, the highlights. We file in the U.S. It goes to Ecuador at their request. We win in Ecuador. They then, to retaliate, come back to the U.S. where we originally— originally wanted the case to happen and sue me personally, sue my colleague Pablo Fajardo personally. He's a lawyer in Ecuador. The this lead is, the, lawyer this on is the Kaplan's case. the judge on that case. Kaplan's the judge. Hated my guts. I mean, part of my problem with Kaplan is that Joe Berlinger, the claimed documentary filmmaker, had made a movie about the case, and which came out in 2009, mm-hmm. premiered at Sundance. And I was one of the protagonists in the film, along with Pablo and some others. Chevron was able to subpoena from Berlinger hundreds of hours of his outtakes. Yeah, let, let's, let's go yeah. through that for a minute because yeah. to get to the film and to some of the white water that you hit later in the case, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, Chevron saw a cut of the film and there was something in there that was later omitted from a cut of the film, which is what prompted them to say, give us the 600 hours and we want to see what else yeah. you omitted. I mean, look, Joe Berlinger followed us around for three years. Um, Joe and I became very comfortable. Joe has me talking very frankly about my frustrations, my fears. Your strategy. Strategy, my joy, um, lots of very personal things. And I personally, as well as my clients, made a conscious decision to cooperate with Joe because we felt like it was far more important to get this story told than to somehow adhere to some sort of notion of the law that you should never work with a filmmaker during a case, which, by the way, many lawyers work with filmmakers. So I think it was a wise choice to work with Joe. 
what Chevron did is they got all his outtakes. Well, I didn't remember half the stuff I had said over three years. And, mm-hmm. and they found snippets of me saying some admittedly stuff that I probably should not have said, stuff like, um, you know, the, all, the, all the judges here are corrupt. And so, and then I'd say, um, I talked about Chevron out of frustration. I said, you know, if you tell a, um, a lie a thousand times, it becomes the truth. I said that in reference to Chevron. The way Chevron edited the outtakes, they cut out the but part where I talked about, about Chevron. And they say, this ethics. is his philosophy. You know, so... And there was a big legal battle with Joe, and he, he invoked yes. some freedom of the press or what have you. Yeah, the journalist privilege, which was, I mean, Joe just got... And they uh, punctured that, and they got the 600 hours. And they, they got the 600 it. hours. What was the net result of that? For your world, the journalist world, I think it was terrible. I mean, I mean, basically, Joe Berlinger's an artist, and he had to turn over his art. I mean, it was just a super bad result. Uh, for us, um, I think it created a certain sensation that something might have been wrong with the way we litigated the case, which has taken us a really long time to combat because Chevron you know, has so many resources, and they have websites up about this kind of stuff. But in the end of the day, it was never evidence in the Ecuador case. It was never relied on by the court. And most of the outtakes show us doing what we should do. Where's the case at now? Well, in Ecuador, it's over. I mean, we, we, we've gotten the decision affirmed by the Supreme Court. We Where's have the f- case with Kaplan now? Oh, the case with Kaplan. It's on appeal. It's on appeal. Right. But ultimately, look, there's nothing Kaplan can do to block the villagers from enforcing their judgment outside the United States. And, and where do you think that'll happen? I think it's most likely to happen in Canada. You do. Happen. Now, um... So it's safe to assume that right now you're waiting for this somewhat reduced verdict, like $9.5 billion or whatever it is. Uh, what's, what's the amount now? It's about $10 billion. So $10 billion, you're waiting for a ruling potentially from the Canadian court that you can access Chevron's assets there. That's to exactly right. Look, the, the, the key— Any idea what the timeline is for that? The, the key point of action, the center of the action now is in Canada. It's in Toronto. How long do you think that'll take? Well, it depends. Will Chevron grind that down? It depends. Into a, Chevron's strategy is grind it down, grind it down, grind it down. Right now, they're trying to basically relitigate everything that you happened. You have one in child? I have one child. He's boy nine. a girl. He's a boy. Yeah, nine. What's his name? Matthew. So Matthew Donziger might be the attorney sitting in the courtroom in Canada that collects the check for, you know, you and I will be gone. We'll be dead. <laughs> and Matthew Donziger will be like, Look, pay I hope, to the order yeah. of Matthew Donziger. I hope not. I okay. hope not. But, it, you know, it's possible. Look. It doesn't matter to me at this point, okay? We, we, we are going to stay in this as long as it takes. A message needs Why? to be sent. A message Why needs to be sent. Why have you done this? this is, you, you, you haven't taken any other cases? No, no, I've done a lot of other cases. You've done a lot of other yeah, cases. I've done a lot of other cases. And that I mean, right, now, right now, over the last few years, I've mostly worked on this, but I've done, you know, I've worked on different law firms. I've done a lot of different cases. And look, there's other stuff I'm, you know, I want to do too and, and plan to do. I mean, right now... It takes a lot of time because we need to sort of get some things organized in Canada in terms of the financing for the next few years and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I, I see a day in the not-too-distant future where I think this whole thing can resolve in the favor of the Ecuadorians. And this is about, they might settle? Well, I, I, think, I think ultimately if we get near their assets in Canada, they're going to be forced to settle. I mean, they're not going to let their assets be seized. Always good if they settle. I want to read you one thing. Not everyone embraced Don Ziger's leadership. Esperanza Martinez, who runs Oil Watch Sudamerica, an environmental group in Quito, told me, I confess the intense personality that Steve has. It's a struggle for me. 
Sarah Lee Whitson, a longtime friend of his who is now at Human Rights Watch, acknowledged that some people are put off by Don Zinger's stubbornness and his theatricality. But it was precisely these qualities, she said, that enabled him to take on an oil giant. Quote, he's a leader, and the fact that he's the one who has been with the case for over a decade has kept it going. What was it like for you in uh, um, Berlinger's film to see yourself? Uh, and what did you say? What did you think when you saw yourself? Look, I, I, I don't because you, you do come across, and I, and I don't begrudge this. I mean, we all have to have confidence in what we do. You have to you have to convey confidence for leadership to convince people of the rightness of what you do. We have to strike a certain pose, and you do come across from time to time as a big fan of yourself in the film, and you're thinking. You're very confident. I'm I'm a big fan of myself. <laughs> I mean, I I, I I I think. Look. I think what we as a team have put together and accomplished is extraordinary. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with what we've accomplished. Right. I mean, people look at me like, oh, you've been attacked, you've been sued. No, 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 no. But, you know, look, uh, you asked me how I, how I came <laughs> See across yourself. in the film. I have to say it, 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 it was mixed. I mean, I, I, was, I, I didn't come across, uh, you know, it was complicated. I, I, there were aspects of my personality that I would see on the screen. It just it didn't really f- make me feel very good about myself. But, you know, look, I've been in this over 20 years. I've evolved as a person. I mean, there were times I couldn't have to. I couldn't go a day down there without yelling at people because I was so frustrated by the complacency of this Ecuadorians who were being victimized. The same people, you know, they're like, you've got to fight. This isn't an American battle. It's an Ecuadorian battle. Do this. Fight. Fight. And ultimately, as we you know, built up our team and learned how to deal with these people and, and eventually won the case, it's very much now in the hands of the Ecuadorians. I mean, this case is not about Stephen Donziger. This case is about people in Ecuador who are now fighting back mm-hmm. with the help of international allies like myself. But it is not my case. I do not own the case. It is owned by them. And ultimately, they can, they can fire me any day they want if they don't want me to work for them anymore. Uh, two last things. Would you like to see a movie made of this case, and who would play you in the movie? Look, there's been talk of a movie. I and the people I work with want to have a movie. Have you made. talked to any movie people? I have talked to some movie people, um, but you know the person who would play me would have to have tremendous fire in the belly. You person- have to be angry. You have to be angry but for I mean, the right reason. I mean, I mean, look, I, I, I have a very wide range of emotions. I don't know if it's come across in this interview, but I mean, I, I, I laugh a lot. Right. I cry a lot. I yell. I scream. I live the full gamut. You care, yeah, and I care, and I'm intense. Look, I try to be self-aware. And I try to treat people with respect, but I also try to accomplish the goals that I have for people who are being completely screwed and have no voice. And if it means that you sort of some people are not going to like you for that, so be it. It's inevitable if you're going to actually create the kind of meaningful change that I think we're creating. I mean, Chevron hates my guts. I mean, you ought to see their emails about me. Sure. But, you know, there's also allies, natural allies in, in, in the progressive part of the legal community who don't like sort of the way we're going about our business. But, you know, when you break, I believe we're breaking the mold. The amount of resources we brought in, the fact we've been able to actually win a judgment in Ecuador after all these years is precedent setting. It's historic. We still have a lot of challenges. We have a lot of work to do to actually recover the money and do the cleanup, which is the ultimate goal here. But, you know, when you do those types of things, you're going to break furniture and you're going to piss people off. And if you sort of want to live a life where you want everyone to like you, you're not going to be able to do this kind of work effectively. So, by the way, I used to want people to always like me and I had to learn that it was okay to have people dislike you as long as it's for the right reason. 
Look, the key to this whole thing is is to just understand what's really happening and understand that you've been successful. They want you to believe you've failed. They want you to get demoralized. They want you to believe you have mountains to climb. And I, I see it very clearly. I think this has been a fabulous experience. We've accomplished so much. We've come so far. We have a little bit more distance to go, and I believe we will get there. And they can't stand the fact that we still feel the way we feel about our accomplishment. It's anyone's guess how Stephen Donziger's fight will end. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.